For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Welcome to this special edition of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. My name is Ruth McGilp, and I'm the communications manager at Fashion Revolution. Claire has kindly asked me to introduce this week's show. And as regular listeners of the podcast will know, Fashion Revolution is a non-profit that brings together a global movement of people campaigning for a fashion industry that values people and the planet over profit. Every year, Fashion Revolution Week is our big campaign calling for a fair, safe, transparent and accountable fashion industry. This year, it runs from Monday 18th of April to Sunday 24th of April, and the theme is Money, Fashion, Power. The idea behind this theme is that the mainstream fashion industry is built on the exploitation of people and the planet, with wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a few. Basically, it's time to reimagine the values at the heart of the fashion system and scrutinise what it is we're really paying for. I also wanted to take this opportunity to talk about our brand new campaign that builds upon these ideas. It's called Good Clothes, Fair Pay, and it's demanding living wages across the garment, textile and footwear sector. It's focused on the EU because the EU is the largest importer of clothing and textiles, so it has a responsibility to take action. So if you're an EU citizen, you can help us collect one million signatures to push for legislation that requires companies selling their products in the EU to conduct living wage due diligence in their global supply chains. We haven't officially started collecting signatures yet, but in a few weeks' time, you'll be able to sign your name. And if you're not an EU citizen, you can still get on board with this by helping us spread the word and push for living wages in the fashion supply chain across the world. To do this, you can connect with us on Instagram at goodclothesfairpay and subscribe to the newsletter at goodclothesfairpay.eu. We are very excited to have Clean Clothes Campaign as one of our key partners on this project. So in this episode of Wardrobe Crisis, you're going to hear Claire interview their international coordinator, Inika Zeldenrust. Based in Amsterdam, Inika is one of the OG founders of Clean Clothes Campaign, which has grown over the past 30 years into a global network of over 200 trade unions, civil society and women's organisations. Today's podcast is an important conversation about how too many garment workers are still exploited and paid poverty wages to make our fashion. We're looking forward to seeing what you all do for Fashion Revolution Week this year. So you can find Fashion Revolution all over social media and check out fashionrevolution.org for more info, resources, events and links to what's happening in your country. Now, let's get to the show. <laughs> okay, we're recording. Well, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. I'm really happy that we get this chance to talk about quite a complex topic. And I love how you have a fierce activism agenda, but you're very good at decoding some of this complicated stuff because not everybody understands the language, the systems, the regulations, and the situation behind the story of garment worker exploitation. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure and I'm delighted and excited to be able to uh, have you know, time to talk about this and try and clarify things. For those who don't know, what is Clean Clothes Campaign and how does it operate? So we're a network of over 200 organizations spread around the world. And there's, I think, about 80 or 90 organizations in Asia. And those are trade unions, women rights groups, activist groups, 
and they work together in regional coalitions and then there's partners in Europe, in Australia, in the US. So we link organizations and people in consumer countries to those in producer countries. And we try and make decisions together and run campaigns to improve the situation of the garment workers. I'd love to talk about how these campaigns work, because maybe if you're listening to this and you might be a fan of Fashion Revolution, or you might have engaged with Remake's Pay Up campaign, you're a buyer of clothes and you hear these stories about women who could be your own age dealing with ridiculous conditions in order to make the things that you buy. And you think, I'm going to join a campaign. And that might be on social media and it might involve writing to your MP. I'm not sure. There's lots of different things we can do as consumers. But Inika, I'd love you to talk to us about what goes on behind the scenes. You mentioned different trade union groups and different groups in different countries. How does it all fit together? And what are the things that you can do to pressure brands to make change? I think what we try and do as a network is harness all different types of power or leverage that we might have because we need to change the way this sector works so consumers indeed can send off messages and we've you know worked intensively with fashion revolution and with pay up the ones you mentioned to make that too but people and women are a lot of the consumers have different types of power as well we can influence the way politicians make decisions through lobby through uh, letter writing through contacting our mps we might be members of trade unions ourselves and trade unions can bargain and stand in solidarity with others to bargain and approach companies more directly. I think what CCC has tried to do is to create an open network space for any type of organization and then find a way for them to put pressure on. We have investors at the moment, so the investor community harnessing their power to make change. There's lawyers who are trying to take companies to court and we'd like to be, yeah, encouraging to do all these different things. All right. I want to talk about fashion's problems. I feel like this whole podcast is about fashion's problems, but you've got a tab or a page on your website titled fashion's problems, which I loved. And it lists all these problems. There's 12 of them on your website. They're things like poverty wages, unsafe workplaces, the COVID crisis. But I wanted to ask you, Inika, could you pick two of them, not COVID because we're going to talk about it and not unsafe workplaces because we're going to talk about Rana Plaza, but pick two of them at your discretion and just give us some lowdown on fashion's problems. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to pick the one on unclear supply chains first, because I think this is a very, very global supply chain, right? You can have, you know, wear a product that has been to more places or garments to more places than you probably have been with all the different components. And lack of transparency, you can't see on a label where all the different components are made. That lack of transparency means we can't hold the right actors responsible and it allows them to hide. So one of the things we've done is to really, really push hard on brands and saying you have to disclose exactly where you are making your garments. And I think we've successfully gotten brands to disclose at least the first tier. So where they place their direct orders. And we've also told them that needs to be put in an open data access map. So there now is something called openapparel.org, where all we push all companies to use that same open data system. So then you can also like for like find back what is happening there. We have made a lot of progress with transparency, though, over the last few years haven't we i really think we do and it makes a lot of in and of itself it won't make life of a garment worker better 
but it it creates the conditions, if you wish, for us to do that. And it makes it uh, far more visible. It really shines a spotlight on what's happening. And, and that can, in and of itself, is like a precondition for change. Now, you can't change it if you can't see it, if it's hidden. Exactly, exactly. And it also goes to the responsibility under the United Nations uh, Human Rights Guidelines for companies. They have to know and show that they've done something about it. So mm. a lot of companies will try and say, oh, my God, I didn't know that was happening. That wasn't in my supply chain. Or if it they turns out that they knew it was in their supply chain, they will still say that wasn't clear to me. So transparency there is is really important. Would it be fair to say you have a healthy cynicism about brands that say they don't know? I do. And I have that cynicism also because I've been involved in so many cases where Brands either are found later. Well, I have a nice example. It's actually Benetton, who denied very hard to be involved in one of the Rana Plaza buildings. And it turned out after a year and a half that they actually had, because we had a copy of a bill, they actually had a documentation in their office. So they they, they literally lied about it. But I've seen images of their labels in the rubble. Yeah, yeah. But that was one of the hardest things we had to do was to actually train people and at that time, because Rana Plaza wasn't by, not the first accident at all, train people to go back in the rubble, workers, you know, which is horrible. It's a horrible thing to do. And to try and locate the labels, take pictures at that point and bring with them journalists and media and yeah, people doing exposure like mm. you are doing. Because that was the evidence that could not be taken away. If we said it or the workers said it, they would say, well, you know, that's not real evidence. But once also media got involved that really helped we're going to come on to rana plaza but i'd like to pick another of fashion's problems from your list (laughs) your 12 (laughs) problems the 12 problem list yeah i think the gender discrimination is another really major one to always keep in our forefront and this is a very uh, female workforce it's not a coincidence it's historically been like that but also women in most societies have much bigger hurdles to face if they want to organize or if they want to fight for their justice. So not only are the conditions sometimes worse in terms of forced overtime or the gender pay gap, but also their ability to fight back, even though they that's not to say that they don't fight back, they fight back very, very hard, is often uh, more restricted. Inika, that just made me think of something I read through Clean Clothes campaign, but I don't have it in front of me, but I remember reading it last year, I think, when I was doing some research. And it was the voice of a garment worker. I can't tell you where from, I can't remember, but a female garment worker. And she was saying they favor hiring us because they expect us to be more silent, more malleable, more easy to kick around, even potentially physically. But I think what she had said was more easy to manipulate and less likely to speak up because of cultural context and also power imbalance. Yeah. You know, like it's better for them to hire the weak woman who won't make a fuss. Yeah. It's a really interesting dynamic because on the one hand, that sort of myth that women are, you know, less likely to stand up is partly a yeah, a myth that, you know, sort of keeps women in that role, the docile female worker. It was also a myth, you know, really connected from for some of the brands to the Asia, where there was this myth that Asian women would be more docile than other women. So it was used even to justify some of the subcontracting. So partly it's a myth. Partly, of course, the reality of the conditions are such that women, you know, including in society, 
do face a bigger hurdle to fight back. But mm. they fight back very strongly. So it's a myth that is used both against us and something that we need to tackle. God, it's really galling, isn't it? Doesn't it make you cross yeah. all the time? Actually, this wasn't in my my planned questioning line, but do you just get cross all the time? And you're actually a very sunny person, so you must have found a way to compartmentalize the anger. How do you do that? Yeah, I do. I do actually can get quite uh, uh, angry. It's it's hard to not to be, but I find the network's mission is very clear, right? It's very clear what we need to do, and it's very clear that this change can be made. So I think as long as I can work with people that believe in that, then I have a healthy space, if you wish. Yeah. And that's as an activist, that means I can turn my anger into, you know, activism and trying to be constructive. And I think, yeah, we have to believe that this happens. And I also think if we genuinely transform this sector into something where women are well-paid, can send their kids to schools, can, you know, make their own decisions, you know, basically, or deal with COVID like you and I can now, you know, you adapt, you work from home, but you you can still have your life. That would be a big win. Let's just look at what's happening now, because the last time I made a podcast about this was in 2020. Yeah, I had to think there. I've lost track of time. <laughs> yeah, COVID does that, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm like, was that when was that? But um, at that time, it was sort of the height of the lockdowns, the first wave of lockdowns. So I think it was April, May, June. We were looking back on, and um, we worked with Pay Up, and we interviewed various different voices, garment workers, factory owners, and activists. And it was a terrible situation. What's changed? have brands started to pay up. And I did just want to share this thing from Business of Fashion. The State of Fashion Report's just come out. There's lots of reports now around fashion coming back, roaring back with a vengeance. Some companies now are doing better than they were pre-pandemic. Yeah. I'm sad to have to say that not much has changed from the workers' perspective. You're right that in some countries, as you know, Europe and US and other consumer markets opened up, production went back up also uh, in the supply chain, back to normal. And uh, the problem has been that the workers didn't get paid for the money that they lost during the year of the pandemic, where they returned to business. And that's a really sizable amount. So that means a lot of them, even the so-called lucky ones whose job got restored, still have debts to pay. They have are in a much more precarious position than they were before. And it was billions that were unpaid collectively. Yeah, we've counted between March 2020 and March 2021 that $12 billion uh, US dollars has not been paid in wages and severance. And it's interesting that nobody has really challenged that figure, right? It's an estimate, but we, we tried to do solid research within the conditions that we could. So I think people would have challenged it if it would not have been correct or roughly correct. I think in other countries, what we've seen is that, of course, the lack of vaccines, the lack of care has created their own third, fourth waves. So, well, theoretically, they could have gotten back in business. Those countries sometimes go back into periods of lockdown. And then workers, in many cases, garment workers were exempted as so-called necessary for uh, <laughs> for the, the economic recovery or the industry. I found that hard to deal with because in Sri Lanka, for example, in Bangladesh, they were told they're necessary for, it's an essential industry. But of course it's not. They're making clothes that end up 
in 30% of the cases on the scrap heap over here. There's nothing essential about it. So they, they literally are putting the, having to put themselves at a much higher risk of infection to go to factories that are not designed to, you know, empower social distancing. And even where they got vaccinated, we've seen many, a lot of infections on the rise among workers and them getting sick. Right. Maybe, you know, just like what we've seen with Delta, you might, you know, not be completely disabled, but you do get sick with no ability to take time off from work to recover, no insurance. And then you're back in the circle of the lack of social safety net. And what we've seen is that for garment workers in particular, the situation has been really impossible. They were in a difficult position to begin with, earning poverty wages, having, you know, very often long travels from home to work, difficulties in, in making sure that they had any childcare at all or sending them to school. And when COVID hit, there's no social safety net. So like my job, I get to work from home and I make do. They are either forced to go back into work or they are, uh, have to stay home unpaid. Instead of at the early part of the pandemic, doing what we called for then, make some sort of master plan for installing a social security system, nothing happened to protect that. So the knock-on effects are still hitting, the dominoes are still falling the hardest at the bottom of the supply chain. Have we seen any general progress on that front that since the pandemic first hit two years ago now, that particular countries or particular regions have at least tried to change those conditions that led to people basically falling through the cracks or are they saying is it generally the case of well we're trying to get back on our feet economically and we have to delay that <laughs> or we're not is there a good news story in this has anyone lifted their game well there is one that well there's more than one but one good example is that in pakistan in sindh province that's one of the biggest production regions of pakistan they increased the minimum wage by 40 percent partly because of the pandemic then the employers try to take legal action against this. So we're now actually calling upon brands and saying, look, for once you have a country where they do the right thing, you always tell us you can't pay a living wage yet, but you pay the legal minimum. Where are you now? Speak up. I know this has got nothing to do with what we're supposed to talk about and feel free to say you refuse <laughs> to comment, but you are Dutch, you are in the Netherlands. This reminds me of the whole Shell thing where yeah. the government said, okay, you know what, we are transitioning away from fossil fuels. Therefore, you got to reduce your emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. And Shell said, well, I'm not having your ruling government. I'm going to move to Britain and pay tax there rather than comply. It's yeah. it may, this stuff, listen to my voice, I get so cross. But <laughs> it's like, what do you mean we've regulated it? You don't get to choose, oh, sorry, I'm not doing that, while pretending yeah. you care. <laughs> no, and, and relocation, of course, you know, the garment industry was one of the first uh, manufacturing industries that did this whole relocation thing. And that threat is always there, both transnational and domestically. So historically, Brand said, if you make this market more regulated, I'll hotfoot it somewhere else. Yeah, that's how the Netherlands and I think Australia too lost a lot of their garment industry. Because then, you know, in some cases, especially in the 70s, you know, and in the 80s, countries did say, well, we're going to regulate anyway, right? Because we have to have social security. We have to have these things. And then a lot of them indeed took that business, that part of the business that they could bring into countries that are cheaper because they are unregulated and did. 
presumably brands will say, well, we have to do that in order to be competitive and the costs are too much and it's all about cost, which brings me to this living wage question, which I know is very complicated. That's how you and I met. I asked for you to help me decode this for our online course, which is on our platform, Wardrobe Crisis Academy, Sustainable Fashion 101, we're trying to teach you the basics. But there's this big question that people always ask when they're new to this. And in fact, when they've been in this for years, why can't brands pay a living wage? We hear from them so often, we want to, we want to do that, but we can't because of X, Y, Z. Well, I think as we also talked about then, one of the things we, I think, have successfully done and with the help of everybody and that we need their help on going forward is to chip away at each and every one of those arguments. And I think by now we are at a stage where it is very clear that brands can no longer deny that they can actually afford it because that that wage increase of 40% in Pakistan is a lot maybe for the employer. But even there, because wages is maybe at the employer level, 10% of the cost of the production. And then once you're in the retail store, it's maybe one or 2% of the price. 2%, yeah. So that is very well unpacked now, right? Everybody has those figures in front of them and they're profitable. As you said, they've returned to profit. And I think one of the things we've done is per brand also show this is your profit margin, these are your wages, here is your gap. Do you think that the European Union's Green Deal, which I know is more looking at circularity and carbon, but do you think that that package of legislation, which is still being considered as we have this conversation, so I know we don't know, but do you think legislation is moving in the EU towards making more of a level playing field for workers' rights and conditions for brands that are producing offshore or bringing the goods into the EU? We hope it's moving in that direction. You know, so there's this myth like, oh, we can't afford it. Then there is the, it needs to be regulated because we need a level playing field. We're doing a lot of lobbying and a lot of pressure there and saying, yes, by all means, regulate it. We, we're united then with your myth. We want a level playing field. It's the only long-term sustainable solution. You need to regulate so it gets priced in. So you can no longer compete on wages. They also say the other brand argument, which does make sense to me, is that they say, well, we don't own the factories, so therefore we're producing in a factory that our competitors might also use. How can we be sure that if we pay more for our product, that that increase goes to the worker and it doesn't just benefit my competitor? Yeah, I I agree with you that that is a good practical problem to have in a way, right? That That is a real problem that needs resolving. And one of the, some of the things we've said and is that, look, there needs to be transparency again in the pricing so that the bit of the cost that is labor needs to be ring-fenced, needs to be very clearly something that you can't compete in. So that needs to be a fixed cost. Mm. Just like paying the rent of the building is to the employer a fixed cost, just like some other... F- costs are fixed. The reason why wages is the bit that always get competed on is that you can, you know, push back on these women and they can't defend themselves and the, the countries don't have minimum wage legislation. On the, you know, the bit where they say, how do I know it gets to the worker and not to my competitor or to my uh, employer? That's where the unions come in from our perspective. 
right? If you have an organized workforce, then the union can sign a bargaining agreement with the employer and they can say, look, our wages for the next two or three years, like in any bargaining agreement, will be increased by this much. If there's transparency on the payments, the unions can say, look, the top up, right, that the brand pays for wages, ring fenced is so much. It's going to go in the bargaining contract and then it's going to go on the pay slip. If there is no union, there should be one, then you can still say, open up conditions, but unionization should be a free choice. You can't force that. But then you can still say it needs to be very clear that the increase in wages paid for by the different brands collectively gets put on the payslip and becomes visible on the payslip. Why then don't brands act on this more quickly? Are they just stingy? I mean, in that sense, I, I yeah, you asked earlier, like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and people who knew have this question. And to me, it is still the core question, right? They can afford it. We have every practical problem they've ever come up with. We have a very solid proposal, right, in terms of turning this into a globally applicable agreement, you know, with verification and monitoring and all these things in. I think in the end, it's a question of power. They're not going to do it as an institution. Maybe some individuals might say, oh, we'll do it. But as an institution, they won't do it until we build up the power. The long-term solution is to regulate. But the shorter term solution, how do you get to that regulation, I think is really for everybody to also ask these CEOs in person. We we never did too much of that type of campaigning, but I think the time is right now to in person really say to people, look, where are you now? H&M has a CEO that comes out of the, Helena Helmerson comes out of the corporate social responsibility angle. Why not do it? You can do it. For the next 10 years, you can take budget out of the family, budget out of your profit, come to the table, sign an agreement with us and change it within the next five years because it's possible. Actually, I did want to ask you, Inika, if the pandemic has been used to cover as an excuse a crackdown on workers' rights, potentially unionizing. Is it happening? Yes, there's certainly evidence of that at the level of individual factories. And it's logical if you take a closer look, and as we do with our our partners, what you see then is say you have an employer and their orders go down or they get cut, they need to make a change. Which are the workers they're going to fire first? Of course, that's the ones in the unionized factory if they have multiple factories, or it's the troublemakers if they have them. Normally, there's scrutiny on that campaigning organizations like ours. We have a lot of room to make noise publicly. Now, our attention also was so much on the pandemic and everything that's happening that there was this possibility to do more of that under the radar. So that's at the factory level. We've also seen some evidence of it at a more higher level at the country government level, where again, but not that's a mixed field, you know, Mm -hmm. but in some cases, of course, governments use the opportunity to lower attention for freedom of associational rights. And close civic space. Yeah. I want to ask you about different countries. I know that you've actually got a long history of working in Bangladesh and that you were one of the architects of the Accord on Fire and Safety. But we hear so much about Bangladesh. Of course, we should. They're not the cheapest wages, are they? I remember reading. Where are they? Are they in Ethiopia? Ethiopia is very low. There's actually really, really low wages in the former Eastern Europe, or they're still in Eastern Europe, but the 
Ukraine, Albania. Is that right? Macedonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think at one point the legal minimum in those countries set in euro is is lower actually than at the moment uh, it was in Bangladesh. Sometimes those are countries that are in the EU. And so it is a, a mixed field. But of course there is, and there is within countries, if you go down the supply chain, back to the home worker or down to the more informalized parts of production, you can have countries where it's a very dispersed wage level. Oh, yeah. I mean, what about all that stuff around southern Italy and home exactly. workers getting paid one euro or something? It's crazy. Yeah. I want to ask about the Uyghurs, though, because I think if you're fairly new to this conversation around global supply chains and worker exploitation, everyone knows about Rana Plaza and everyone has now heard about slavery and forced labor in the cotton supply chain. What's the latest on that? Um, yeah, again, it's it goes to the power of transparency, I think. A lot of work has been done to expose, well, first of all, what's been happening in that region, but also the links of export from that region back into brand supply chains. So we've put out together with a coalition to end forced labor sort of yeah action plan that brands can sign which would you know give them two years to phase out production and we've asked brands to publicly sign that very few only have done that more have made statements that they will do that but without necessarily signing that agreement and i think legislation there we've also really been pushing on that because this is such a clear-cut case of due diligence, auditing will not work, you know, it's no. pure and only forced labor, it needs to just end. The US has passed legislation and the European Union has announced legislation. And we think that that will make sure that brands have to hopefully put enough pressure on China to put an end to these forced labor camps. Alternatively, for the time being, go for other sources of cotton. I think we could do a whole podcast about that topic. We do have, in previous seasons, three episodes that look at forced labour, and I will share links to them. A particularly good one is the one with Baroness Lola Young. But I want to ask you, Inika, about Nike. What's happening with Violet Apparel in Cambodia? They're still struggling. So Violet was a, a factory that produced for Nike, but it was, we were talking earlier about transparency and disclosure, denial. It was a subcontracting factory. So the workers have evidence that they were actually doing Nike products, but they're not on Nike's first tier supply list. So Nike denied, which is, a, like I said, a very um, disappointing response. We would have expected better from them, given that they have, you know, we're one of the first to really invest in transparency, again, after a lot of campaigning. Yeah, it was a very typical corona case. They got paid 30 US dollar uh, in the end. But you can't survive on that, right? That was like a third of the minimum wage. So they were sent home part of the time. Well, this factory closed. For a part of the time, they still got some money. So we're still out there pushing for Nike to pay them what they're owed, their severance agreement, back wages, and to sign an agreement with the Pay Your Workers Coalition, which is a coalition of clean clothes and many others, to make sure that all workers get their outstanding wages paid. There's lots of companies and brands and stories of workers not getting paid or 
things going wrong during the pandemic. But I picked this one in particular because this whole story of transparency and worker exploitation in the fashion supply chain, it goes back a long way previous to Rana Plaza. And I'm thinking about the 1990s, the No Logo era. I remember reading that book when I was at uni, Naomi Klein. It was the time of sweatshop protests where actually not as much in Britain, I don't think, but, you know, American college students really spearheaded a movement to try to say, we're not going to accept our sportswear being made in sweatshops. And Nike was at the the center of it, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you you read it. Naomi came to the office we were in then to talk to us back then. So it was, uh, and and I know that book really caught a lot of the, uh, and it was really nice for us too, because it sort of lifted some of the work that we were doing bum into the mainstream at that point. And I think Nike was indeed one of the first ones that, you know, both us in Europe and our colleagues in America, you know, there were very few organizations working on it then. And they have their European headquarters here in in Holland. So we did these joint actions using the logo, which I think they paid $25 for at some point for that swoosh. Right, so it was also iconic because Nike didn't own anything, right? They just did the subcontracting, and they were so proud of it, right? And then on the other side, you had these workers, and using that imagery, indeed, sparked it. And I think Nike for a while invested really in being a company that was very proactive on these issues. And now, because attention has shifted a bit away from the sportswear companies, which indeed was that whole wave in the 90s, because they then started to close their supply chain, pay more attention, improve at least the visible stuff. Yeah. And now they sort of gotten complacent, I think. <laughs> and it's time that we push them again. Because, But that also is frustrating because you would think like, okay, you know, we can now move on to the H&Ms and the Zaras and the fast fashions, which really started around the year 2000. And as a business model is more destructive, rather than having to, again, pay attention to the sportswear brands, but they need to up their game. It's it's very clear. It's funny. We're in the era of lockdowns and no libraries. I like to visit libraries. I've been going to street libraries, and so you just get whatever's there. And the other day I picked up Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog. It's bloody good. <laughs> yeah. Did he write that book himself? I mean, I'm like, he's a good writer. Did he get a ghostwriter? Anyway, I haven't got to this part I'm yet. Sure I'm, a, I'm at the kind it's, of, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm reading the Genesis story of how he invented this out of nowhere. But it's just funny. Everything was, was pointing to Nike. But you're right. They had a dreadful reputation, companies like Nike and Levi's. And then they were the leaders who cleaned it up. And now we, I'm used to talking about them, particularly in things like circularity as leaders. We say, well, look at them. They turned it around. They're massive, but they fixed it. They saw the problem. They in terrible headlines for years, weren't they? They were the worst. And now uh, they've swung uh, around and now they're great, but they're still not perfect. <laughs> no, well, there is some truth in that, right? So that also shows the power of campaigning. The problem is how do you sustain that victory? Because you can't shine a spotlight on everybody all of the time. So again, that goes partly back to regulation and you know, really moving your campaigning from your initial victory into something more binding, like the accord is binding, but ultimately into public regulation. And I think that is something that Phil Knight or others, the question to them should also be, and will you now then support? public regulation to make sure you, you always had this level playing field argument. Now you stepped up as a leader. Where are you now to make sure that we then don't have to again lock horns later on? 
I could talk to you all day and we haven't got time, so I, I won't, but I, I want to ask you, you mentioned the Accord. I think we don't need to go into the whole story of that because perhaps people know enough because it's been so widely reported, the story of Rana Plaza. We've done podcasts about it. You can listen to the one we did with Kalpana Actor. But I do just want to ask you, Inika, how did you feel in 2021 when it looked like the Accord would not be renewed? Bloody annoyed. That, that's the, the, the core of it, because we wanted to campaign on everything happening to COVID. Right? We wanted to run that campaign because that was the urgent campaign of witch theft and so fix that problem along the lines of the way we fixed the safety issues. Right, So we had a model that we wanted to replicate and make it apply to the, the issue at hand. COVID was a similar kind of crisis, right? but then much bigger scale. So instead of signing the new agreements within the hour, so to speak, and freeing us all up, including industry, to deal with the urgency at hand. They backtracked, came with problems, walked away from... Nego- well, you, it's a long saga of campaigning, which yeah. we won in the end. But yeah. I've been largely felt annoyed about having to campaign at all. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about campaigning because I'm very interested in the genesis of Clean Code's campaign. You said that you remember Naomi Klein coming to your office so did you start in 89? When did you start? Yeah, it was 89. Really out of a very, what we now know is a typical case, but which then felt that new. We had these reports from women in the Philippines who were, whose factory had closed without paying them their severance. There you go. Again. I mean, we're still the same story. They, yeah, we're still. <laughs> they had a picket in front of their, their building for a year. But this was pre-internet, pre-anything, right? So we, we heard stories from people who knew people in the Philippines. And then we also understood that this linked back to a company in the UK who in turn supplied CNA. And so we did some actions around it because, well, this was a time when I and other friends, we were doing a lot of actions in solidarity with South Africa and, and apartheid and, and also this women's labor. And it really struck a nerve. We had a lot of old people in the Netherlands who came by who said, well, I remember my mother used to work for CNA or because this supply chain was then still partly there. My own grandfather actually was a, a textile worker. So there's a lot of connections there. And it really sparked a nerve. And in the end, well, we had took a year, that whole campaign, lawsuits, actions, but also a lot of churches stood in solidarity with activists. We had a consumer organization coming up. So we then felt together with a lot of different groups who gotten involved, like we want to find out more. Is this happening more structurally and work together more? But where were you then? Were you a student? Were you? I was a, a student at the time and also an activist. What were you studying? Law. No, no. I, I wish sometimes I had studied law. No, I studied human geography of uh, developing countries with a specialization in women's studies, actually. Um. But I studied that largely because I wanted to travel. And, you know, this was the one university study that came with a, a internship uh, abroad. <laughs> and where did he study? Were you in Amsterdam? Amsterdam, yeah, yeah. So those early campaigns, what form did they take? I've seen great pictures. We'll share them. There's a really good a page of our history on the Clean Clothes campaign site. You can see it's it was really energetic, very creative. 
people yeah. you know we think now extinction rebellion invent i know they didn't but it's easy to imagine if you're young you go oh wow extinction rebellion invented creative direct action or fashion revolution invented great graphics but you were doing this you know all these years ago yeah it's it's very similar we did you know shop windows in front of shop fake ones burning clothes actually making clothes lines in front we did a, a lot of the Symbolic burnings also happened when the fires happened in, in Bangladesh. It was a bit later. I remember some of the nicer ones were we made a portable shop window and went with five workers from different countries in Asia in a bus with the portable shop window across Europe. And then, you know, the workers would talk and tell their story and the shop window built up in front of, you know, so you put that image there. Broke the swoosh a lot, had anti-logos a lot. Oh, yeah. I think we were the, we weren't one of the first ones to do that, right, to sort of br- break that swoosh. But at that time, taking garment workers on a tour, like a speaking tour, that was very unusual. People didn't get to hear in in consuming countries from the people who made their clothes, did they, at that point? No, not at all. And we had to find out before that, make that link, right, prove that link. So... Yeah, some of the ways we did it was we used to, uh, me and a colleague, dress up as fashion buyers or as consultants, fashion consultants. We thought we couldn't really get away with the fashion buyer, but we bought a suit, you know, dressed up as fashion consultants and, you know, traveled to Asia to meet the partners there. But then also with, you know, the business card and we would go into a hotel to send the facts from there. And then as fashion consultants, interview the managers in the factory And in that way, we would get evidence of which labels they were producing. And we put that into um, reports, basically. You have been for 30 years a thorn in the side of lots of these organizations and people. You must be brave to do these things. What drives it? I think one of the nicer things of CCC, you know, I've been around a long time, but it was never me alone, right? I mean, I've been doing this together with really great colleagues every step of the way always teamed up both in here in europe and across the world and elsewhere and a lot of others also are and have stuck to the network maybe moved positions in it so that's very motivating right that that sense of working together and i think we've won you know like sometimes it's depressing especially now in COVID, that you feel so many problems are still there at the same time there's been some amazing wins for workers too I've mm. known workers who, you know, after protesting, started their own worker collectives. I've known ones that have moved up. You know, one of the women that went with us on that bus tour as a worker for Levi's, she's now quite a, a well-known trade union leader in Indonesia. One of the the things that we always try to share with people who want to start out in activism is that it's a long game, but also the wins are what keeps momentum. I asked you before, like, how do you not get cross all the time? And your answer was inaction. If you do action, then you don't have time to get cross. You're making a difference. You're working towards something. But then that thing around how to stay motivated, it's about celebrating the wins. And it's all the bad stuff that gets the, the headlines. But then there are loads yeah. of wins, aren't there? There's Even if they're small ones, they add up. You see things working. You see how you are making a difference. Yeah, I think the fact what we always hear from workers is the fact that their struggles are being seen, supported and recognized for what they are. And the fact that what's happening to them is being recognized as a violation is truly important. Otherwise, you just go every day 
to that factory, you have to work for 60 to 80 hours and nobody's even noticing. Right? It still needs to translate in improvements. So I think for workers, it's very clear, right? They, they, know, they know what their situation is and they also have their lives and their happiness and they sing songs and they come together and they stand in solidarity and that is motivating for them. I think for us, yeah, it's sometimes it's a bit, I don't know. I, I also still feel it's a privilege to be able to have your professional life dedicated to something important as human rights. It sounds a bit maybe like overstatement, but, you know, if you would ask Phil Knight, what have you done? Yeah, I've sold a lot of shoes, right? <laughs> if he goes on 10 more years, he will have, to, he will have sold more shoes, right? I mean, in that sense, it's harder to keep that one up than to keep up what I'm doing, right? I mean, it is a lucky thing to be able to do. But we've run out of time, Minika, but I just really want to know what you were like as a kid and how you became this activist person. If you had to describe yourself pre-work, what were you like? Partly very bookish, very typical, uh, you know, I read a lot, but I was also a very typical child growing up in the 70s where a lot of was about social justice, right? In high school also, it was the, it felt very natural. There was a lot of attention to it. I really liked everything to do with the whole punk movement, which came when I was 13, 14. The whole do-it-yourself culture of that was great. Still, you know, the nicer things of activism, the, the feeling that you can yourself create a change and go off and do it, even if you have no money, even if you know no education, doesn't matter. You go out there. That's what I like about Extinction Rebellion, but also I really like about any people who tomorrow will think like, now I'm going to do something. I'm just going to try and make that change. Enigra, I've got to let you go because you've got some stuff to do. <laughs> i got stuff to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid I do. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing your insights. Thank you so much, Claire. It was a great thing to do and I look forward to hearing the podcast. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.